Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in a series entitled Pursuing God, and today we come to look at the authority to obey. The authority to obey. The Christian's authority to obey and to serve God is God Himself. When the exiles returned from their or returned to their work, remember they had come back, they had stopped the work because they got discouraged and just thought, what is the purpose of all of this? And God sends Haggai and Zechariah, and he says, consider your ways. Uh, you, you say things are hard, but nothing's hard for you. Your life is greatly blessed. And now you need to give yourself, not just to your selfish ways, but to consider the Lord's ways. And so he, he awakens them by the word that he sends to them. And they return to the work because they trusted not in their own ability, but in God's authority. In God's authority. And you know, it reminds us that God-sized tasks require God's authority to obey and to serve his mission. And that's who we are as God's people, living under his authority. I want to read verses 1 through 5 as we begin this morning of Ezra chapter 5, and then we'll continue with the message. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So that's where we came to a couple of weeks ago. And now today, verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and uh, Shathar, Bozanai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, what are the names of the men who are building this house? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. God awakens his people, they return to the work. And immediately upon their return, they sense this unity among them that was strengthening them for the work, that was gathering them and encouraging them for the work. And so when the local governors heard of the work restarting, they came to them, and this was a number of the surrounding governors that had already applied pressure and intimidation tactics to try and stop them. And they did stop them for a time, but on this point, when they had heard the word of God and returned to the work, these governors came back and they asked them two questions. Who gave you this authority and who's doing the work? We're going to tell. They wanted names to turn into the king. But listen, verse 5 tells us of another overseer of the project. Look at the first phrase of verse 5 again. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Oh, there's an eye looking down upon his people. You see, the leaders led the exiles to return to the work because they remembered under whose authority that they were living. 
Friends, what I want you to see today is this, is that Christ followers obey and serve God's mission by his authority to accomplish his purpose for his glory in the world. We obey and we serve God's mission by his authority. Now I want you to consider what transpires for the Israelites immediately in this context. And so if we go to verse 6, following verse 6, we begin to see what carried forth in this. Those local governors didn't like it. And so they again knew that their intimidation tactics wouldn't work, and so they appealed to a higher power. And verses 6 through 10 records the letter that Governor Tatanai and his counterparts wrote to King Darius, and they seek to arouse yet again the fear by making them aware of the work. Basically, if you let them continue in this, they're going to rise up in rebellion just like they did at the beginning. And so he's referring to their past when the Israelites would not succumb to the Babylonians, but they were also rebelling against God. And that's why God sent the Babylonians in to conquer them to begin with and took them into exile. And so Tatanai is trying to appeal to the sinful past of the Israelites in order to conjure up fear in the heart of King Darius. But what he didn't know was that there was more in the historical record than just the rebellion of the Israelites. There was the redemption of the one who was overseeing everything. And so verses 11 through 16, we find the answer that the Israelites gave to the local governors. It's a simple answer, and it tells why they are there and how it is that it came about. And their response that we'll look at in just a moment was basically a testimony of God's direction that reveals his authority and the fact that they recognize themselves operating under his authority. In addition, it tells that Cyrus had already given a decree that they could go do the work and he was resourcing the work. But of course, Cyrus had passed and now Darius was king. And so Tatanai requests a response, hoping that he'll get permission from Darius the king yet once again to shut him down. Very likely unknown to Tatanai, his request causes Darius to search the historical record. But this time Darius did a little more work than the last king who shut him down. And he did discover another later decree by Cyrus that told what happened after the Israelites had been taken into exile. And there he found that Cyrus had actually authorized the work and resourced the work. And so he reauthorizes the work to continue in the letter that he sends back to the local governors. But friends, at this moment, there is a turning point in the book of Ezra. I told you the first six chapters of Ezra cover roughly an 80-year span of time. The last four chapters will cover one year. So we've been looking at a slower process in the history here, and things are about to speed up. But there's another shift that takes place here, and it is the regular attacks of the local governors and peoples who didn't like and who opposed the Jewish exiles. Such that one commentator, Derek Kidner, notes this, from this point onward to the end of Nehemiah, there's conflict. There's conflict. Nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged. And scarcely will there be a tactic that gets unexplored 
in their actions of opposition. He's right. He's exactly right. You see, any place in any life that is without the enemy's opposition, you can be guaranteed it's absent of God's authority. There's no mission of God taking place there. Because where mission is not served, there is no authority present. Where there is no authority presence, there will be no obedience by the individual rendered. And where there is no obedience rendered, there is no need for the enemy to be concerned. Where God's kingdom is not advancing, Satan couldn't be more unconcerned because sin is already taking its root, is going to naturally take its place. The enemy, though, guarantees this, as we've already seen a couple of messages ago. Opposition to mission and to our obedience as a Christian is inevitable. And its efforts to thwart our obedience and faithfulness to mission will remain unceasing. But friends, hear me. There is no power greater And there is no one other that threatens God's authority. Why is this about authority? Because everything is about first and foremost, whose authority are you doing what you do in? It's the first issue of obedience to God. It's the first issue of serving his mission. That's always the issue of authority. And I say to you today, the issue of life is an issue of authority. Will you live your life under your authority or will you live it under God's authority? That's why authority is so hated and loathed in our world. Why? Because every claim of authority is a threat against self-righteousness, self-religiousness, and self-enthronement. The advancement of the self is claiming self-authority. And they ask, who sent you? What are you doing? You see, friends, Christians are called to walk in obedience to God's commands by faith. Why? By his authority. Look at this from a New Testament perspective for just a moment. Jesus modeled a perfect life under God's authority in his ministry on earth. And he tells us two things in the Gospel of John. He tells us he submitted to the Father because he only spoke the words that he heard the Father tell him to speak. I believe that's why he didn't say anything in his trial leading up to his crucifixion. For the Testament tells us that he opened not his mouth like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Why? Because they were false accusations. There was no testimony that could be offered that would in any way rightly respond to them because when it's a false accusation, there can't be any right response. So Jesus just let them carry out because he wasn't living under the authority of the rulers. He was living under the authority of the Father. And it was in their hands to carry out what God had already ordained to do. But Jesus said, not only did I only speak the words that my father gave me to speak, I came to complete the work he gave me to do. Jesus didn't do anything that he didn't hear the father tell him to do. 
That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, leading up to his trial and crucifixion, he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. What cup was it? It was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus would absorb and drink dry for us. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, thy will be done. Jesus modeled life under the Father's authority in his ministry on the earth. But Jesus also teaches that the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of our triune God, only speaks by Jesus' authority. The Spirit of God didn't come to bring the third agenda of God. The Spirit of God didn't come to bring his own agenda of God. Our God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ who operates under the same authority that Christ operates under, the authority of the Father as revealed in the Word of God and as carrying out the finished work of the Son of God. That's why it's so dangerous when we start telling people what the Spirit has told to us. Specifically, when that doesn't align with God's word. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not, 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 not. Don't get the carp ahead of the horse. What comes before that? Jesus looked at his disciples. Living out of the un raveling of the trauma of the last month and a half or so, watching his unjust trial and his, his wrongful uh, crucifixion and, and then seeing his resurrection and just beholding his presence for more than 40 days after his resurrection and just before his ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father today, he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore. And friends, let me tell you something. Every moment of our church's existence is laboring to convince every person that we have influence over of this. That whatever comes after therefore doesn't matter because of what came before it. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. Therefore. A lot of times you hear us use the word sent. Christians live sent. Sent on what? Sent on God's mission. Sent is a word that denotes a life lived under authority. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. Christians are to live sent as ambassadors of Christ. Now an ambassador doesn't come into his realm to operate on his own authority, but he represents the one who sent him or the authority of that one. And so the way that a Christ follower lives our lives indicates whose authority we live under. That's the very answer that the Israelites are offering to the local governors as they try to intimidate them. Whose authority are you doing this under? 
And that's what they answer to them. And that's what we answer to, friends. Christ followers live sent in Jesus' name. And sent means that we are denoting God's authority is over our life. God's authority is required for our obedience. It is required for his mission. You see, the life of obedience by faith in order to serve God's mission is ordained with God's authority. You have God's authority to obey his word. And just as we've already said, there's no power, there's no other authority that competes. That's why God commands us to strengthen our heart, to trust in him by his authority. We are ordained with God's authority. And we, listen to me, this may not, you may not think this describes your life, but according to the scripture, it does. We are ordained with God's authority and we are unhindered in our obedience and serving his mission. You go, now pastor, you don't know me very well. I don't live a life unhindered in serving God. You do when you trust him and walk with him by faith. I didn't say unopposed. I said unhindered. And the storm may blow, and the attacks may assail, but God's will will not be thwarted because his authority is unmatched. He will accomplish his will in your life. Now, there's a misconception about Christianity, and it leads to a lot of confusion among many Christians. It's something they hold that we have to obey God in our own strength. In other words, we give ourselves to what we can accomplish for God instead of what God has commanded or called us to do. And we work out of a sense of uh, what we ought to do. We work out of a sense of what we are able to do. And we work out of a sense of, of, of if we do, then maybe we might even receive people's applause for our doing. But you see, God doesn't save us and then go, good luck. Go get them. Tiger. That's not how God works. Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, he starts it with all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me therefore. And how does he end it? And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. God's not calling you, go do something. God's calling you, come join me. And friends, I'm telling you, this changes everything. When we serve God in this way, out of an ought to do or an able to, I can do what I'm able to do. And that way, if we only serve God in this way, we see what God commands us to go, God, I'm not able to do that. It's like a get out of jail free card in the game board, a board game, you know, but that's not the way God operates. But when we serve God in this way, we, we obey in our own strength. We obey in our own understanding that is absent of faith and that is absent of his authority we allow our own ability or understanding to limit us we allow our fears to control us and we allow any opposition to stop us but that's not how God designed our obedience and our service to operate you see the life of a Christ follower is ordained authorized by God He commands what he's already accomplished in Jesus for his righteousness and glory's sake. He has determined beforehand what you are to do. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says when he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But that isn't the end of the verse. There's a comma and the last verse tells us this. Which he determined beforehand for you to do. 
And thus he will empower us by his Holy Spirit. You see, a Christ follower lives under God's authority to trust his power in us, to accomplish his purpose for us as he does his work through us. And so I want to look today at four blessings of God's authority. Four blessings of God's authority that we see testified from the Jewish exiles today. And these blessings of God's authority anchor our life to live in humble submission to God through Jesus Christ at all times. Look with me at the first blessing in chapter 5, verse 11, the first half of the book, listen, or first half of the verse, rather, listen to their initial reply. This was their reply to the governors of the, uh, that were trying to get them to stop. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. You see, when we live under God's authority, we live, first of all, in the blessing of our new identity in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, our life isn't just ours to live as we please, but we see who we are because of what we've come to understand about who God is. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. You see, when they forgot who they were, they went about their merry way to make themselves happy. We saw already in chapter 4, they had everything they needed. They did not live in want. They even, there were indications they were living in abundance. But they were miserable people. Why? Because they were not serving and trusting the Lord. And so when God comes to them through Haggai and Zechariah, he says to them, you've built your houses, you've established palatial mansions, you've established your own celebrations, and everything says me, myself, and I, and anyone that I want to include in that. But God says, why have you spent so much time serving self when I'm the one that brought you back to serve me? Get back to building the house of God. And he calls them to awaken to the work of God by the words of the prophet. So when they remembered who they were, we're here because we are servants of the Most High God. They returned to God's work. You see, a right understanding of our identity as a Christian is essential for us to live under God's authority. Because the moment we forget who we are in Jesus Christ, we're going to wonder why we've got to bother with his word. Because his word just becomes a burden to us. Until we rest in our identity in Christ, we will continue to work to earn God's favor, never feeling it. And ultimately, to achieve people's applause. No matter how well you perform, you cannot obey God outside of his authority. And doing God's work will never win the accolades of man. You see, too often we define obedience as complying with God's rules, complying with God's rules. But listen to me, friends, rebellion against God is not first of all about outward action, but inward rejection. Now, let me give a personal testimony here for just a moment. You're looking at a professional rebel What do you mean by that? I can tell you from the earliest days of my life when I was told, Lane, this is what you're going to do. I'm going, oh, you just triggered something. I am not going to do that for an extended period of time until I am aptly persuaded by other means. And then I'm only going to do it out of regret because I don't want to. 
And when you'd say, Lane, let me tell you what you're not going to do. I would go, hold my Kool-Aid. That's exactly what I'm about to do. You see, friends, before rebellion is an outward action, it is an inward orientation. I'm going to tell you what, we've so accessorized and glamorized rebellion against God. We've made it so palatable that we don't even flinch anymore. As a matter of fact, it's become desirable. We go, I don't know that God would really want me to do that. Listen to me, friends. That's rebellion. When your heart flinches at the command of God, you're giving in to rebellion and denying his authority. So, if rebellion against God is not first about an outward action, obedience, therefore, is not about outward compliance or conformity. Obedience, friends, is about inward orientation to the living presence, to the living power, to the living peace, and ultimately the pleasures of God at all times. We are never more fully and completely identified with God than when we live with a heart full of God. Jesus demonstrated and taught this about his own obedience as we saw a while ago under the Father's authority. And he showed to us that our identity not only determines our life, but resources our obedience and our mission. And it sources the strength of our heart and of our mind and of our life for all that God has called us to and commanded us to. And we will only serve or live to serve God when first we trust him as the source of our new identity. When we live under God's authority We have the blessing of our new identity in Christ. This is the first blessing in our our church's vision. We start with this. This is where we begin in understanding the life of a Christ follower, teaching you who it is that God has remade you as worshiper, servant, disciple, and missioner. And these four aspects of your new identity in Christ forms the meaning, forms the purpose, the manner, and the direction for all of life. This is why he has created you anew in Christ to be his, a heart that grows in all-consuming love for God, a mind that's being transformed in the whole of life by being renewed continually through the truth and the light of God's word. Hands that are living to serve other people and show them how God has loved you and wants to love them. And feet, in representation of the very schedules of our life, We are here and all that we do is live for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. When you walk out of here today, Christian, your worship is not finished. It's only been launched. When you walk back into your office, you walk back into your shop, into your place of work, into the classroom, wherever it is that you're going tomorrow, your worship is still as vital to the name of Jesus Christ as it is when you sit here. As a matter of fact, if it's not there, it's not here either. That's living under God's authority. And the blessing of a new identity before anything else is that you must trust the great work that God has done for you to remake you in Jesus Christ. The second blessing we see is that when we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of a new perspective. 
the blessing of a new perspective. Look at the second half of verse 11 when he says this, we're servants of the God of heaven and earth and we're rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. This is why God brought us here. This is what's been going on. And we've understood this, that generations ago, when we were carried out of here to begin with, and the original temple was destroyed, it wasn't because your hand was so great. It's because God was loving enough not to let us live in our rebellion, but he disciplined us by putting us into exile. And he's loved us enough and redeemed us to bring us back and rebuild his house of worship. This is a new perspective that they have gained because of their trust in the authority of what God is doing. Friends, nothing is more dangerous than for Christians to believe that what God is doing now is somehow disconnected from what he's always been doing or that what God did back then is in some way not what he's planning to do today. No, our God is one. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God who is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. It is a great encouragement. It is the strength of our life in knowing that we join God in his redemptive work that he has always eternally been about doing. And this new perspective about what's shaking out in this world reorients our whole life to serve God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 when he says this. Listen, the love of Christ controls us. Controls us, compels, controls, both mean the same. Here's what he says. We have concluded this. This is why we are controlled by the love of God. That one has died for all. That's Jesus. And therefore all have died. In other words, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ died the death that he died for them before God. This is the gospel, friends. And he goes on to say, he died for all that those who live, you and I, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind to live as a living sacrifice. This is what Paul is telling us. This is the conviction of our life. This is the ruling center of who we are. There isn't anything in the depths and the core of our bones and the marrow of it that says more to us than the love of God and what he wants to do in us by doing through us. But Paul says this, so from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Do you see how your faith changes the way you walk because of what we believe about Jesus Christ now we believe new things about people we believe things that we don't even see yet with our eyes people who are far from God people who are antagonistic to the things of God people who hate God people who are apathetic to God we see them differently because God saw us that way when we lived in our rebellion We regard no one according to the flesh. Why? Because we once regarded Christ as useless. But when we found he was the all-controlling, worthy center of life, we realized there's no one out here 
that he doesn't want us to preach the gospel to and call to repentance and faith. The new creation God has made of us causes us to believe something new about Jesus. And because we believe something new about Jesus, we hold a new perspective about all things. We do not live for the applause. We do not live for the accolades, nor from the reward that this world wants to promise us. Christians live for the one who died for all. Because in his death, by faith, is your death to sin. And in his resurrected life by faith is your new life to walk in. When we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of this new perspective of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's doing, and how it is that he's using us to accomplish his purpose. Again, I appeal to our covenant membership classes, to our theological perspective. We understand God in three principal ways. God is truth. He's revealed himself as truth. God is mystery. We don't own the box that God lives in. And God is story. And that's what we're talking about today, friends. God as story means that he brings us in to the plan of redemption that he has accomplished in the finished work of Jesus Christ and that he is sending forth through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit and the light of his word into every dark corner, every dark heart uh, uh, in the world. And he's using us to do that. Few things are as empowering as seeing your life in the greater story of God's redemptive plan. And nothing is as encouraging as knowing this, that God is using you to reach other people for his glory. What God did with Philip and the Ethiopian, he's still doing through every person who is a follower of him today. Every person. The third blessing is this. When we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of redemption. The blessing of of redemption. Verses 12 through 15 tells us of the work that they were going about doing. And verse 15 says, he said to them, take these vessels. He's saying, look, man, when, when, uh, when Cyrus sent us back and, and we were coming back, I mean, he took everything that had been taken from the temple and he sent it back with us. And that's how it got here. He says, but verse 12 begins, because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, now listen to this. That's history right there. And they had never very likely acknowledged, they knew it, but they had not acknowledged that aspect that their going into exile was not because the Babylonians had just become bigger and stronger than they were, but because of their rebellion, God rose up to discipline them. Through the Babylonians. Verse 13. They say at the end of verse 12. The Babylonians destroyed this house and carried away the people. Verse 13. There is a most blessed word that begins. However. 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 This is what happened. But that wasn't the end of the story. Amen. And verse 15 ends. Let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. The old hymn sings, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. However, I see. That's the blessing of living in God's redemptive plan. 
when the new eyes throw the shackles off of your heart and your own eyes and you begin to see life differently and you begin to understand what God has been doing all along. And if Ezra tells us anything, it reminds us that God does great things through his people, not because his people are great, but because God is great. God was the one rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It was his will and his purpose and his people that were sent into exile that he brought back to serve his mission. Why did God do this? Because he is a redeeming God. He sent Jesus as a propitiation for our sin debt, not his own. And once he died and rose again, the work was finished. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. Not to be confused with the end of verse 15 uh, here. Let me make sure I got my verse right. Sorry, it's not verse 15. But in a moment, they say verse 16. And it is not yet finished. There is an echo from that word to the very cross of Jesus Christ. And when the, Israel, uh, when the Israelite ex exile said, this work is not finished yet. Jesus hung on the cross and said, now it is. Now it is. It's done. We ought to hear that, friends, every day of our life. That's what he did through Jesus Christ. And once the debt was paid, now he could forgive us. He could cleanse us. He could reconcile us to himself. And now reconciled, he would return the value of his glory to our lives and redeem us. This is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God redeeming for the glory of his divine name in the purpose of Jesus Christ through his people on mission. You see, the answer that the Israelite leaders gave shows God's work that is what they were trusting. They were trusting in God, not in what they could do. Instead of being angry about the past, which no doubt many of them had, instead of getting bitter and just letting the infection of their heart grow, 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 they began to see God's redemption through all of it. You see, when you live outside God's authority, his work becomes more a root of anger in you instead of a seed of redemption. You don't just get mad, you get mad at God. You don't just blame others, you blame God. But when you live under God's authority, everything serves his divine purpose for redemption. Whew. I'm gonna ask you how you understand God's work in your life. I told you a while ago I was a professional rebel. I got paid for it. It wasn't a very fun payment. But my dad made sure I got paid for my rebellion. Praise be to God. He showed me what that salary was going to look like if I continued in it. And how much worse it would get. I don't tell you that I'm a rebel to brag. I don't go around boasting about how hard my heart has been towards God and and even the inklings of rebellion that remain when God commands something of me or I sense his word calling me to something and there's any inkling of going, but God. There's a difference between but God and but God. When you think of your past, hard lessons, do you get angry at God? I don't know why you let me go through that. I'm going to tell you, that's the infection of bitterness and rebellion 
that's lingering in your heart. You see, when you begin to believe and live in the gospel, the redemption of Christ becomes the most glorious hope in your life that you look even upon the seasons of rebellion and you thank God for his disciplining hand. You thank him that he saved you from yourself, from your ignorance, from your hardness, from, from your stupidity. There's been plenty of that, personal testimony. You thank him for it. You don't get angry at him for it. And even sometimes you go, God, I didn't like what you did here. But you trust him even when you don't understand. And so I ask you, do you see God working in all things? All things. Because you are convinced he is working out your redemption. God doesn't work non-redemption. He redeems. He will not do other. To do other would be unfaithful to himself. And he never is. If obedience and mission were determined by our ability, our capacity, God would be limited by his people. But God does not have a mission for his people. God didn't gather us as a church and go, all right, Life Point, I'm glad you, I'm glad you are here today. And we're going to, let's see, let's figure out something you can go do. That's not how God works. God says, this is my mission. It's the mission of redemption. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. God has a people for his mission that he empowers by his authority. What God wants to do through you is bigger than you. It's bigger than your ability. It's bigger than your imagination. And when you live under his authority, he empowers you to serve his purpose by the blessing of your redemption. The fourth blessing is this, and I'll be quick. When we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of perseverance. The blessing of perseverance. And friends, we need the fourth blessing because we've had the third. Living under God's authority is the key to perseverance. Verse 16. We're not going to stop because it's not yet done. How do you know that God's not finished? The sun came up this morning. How do you know God's not done? My eyes came open and I took a breath. And that was the first awareness that I had this morning of life. When my feet hit the floor, I knew God had a purpose for me even before they touched it. Why? Because that's what he has said. He's always been about doing his work. And in his grace, he allows me to rest because it is not dependent on me. But I'm telling you, I rest in the same faith I walk in. And when I get up to walk, I go about the work that the master has for me to do. When we remember all that God has promised, we are strengthened to stay the course. To persevere in all that God has called us to until the work is finished. You see, it is the authority of God that anchors our confidence that he completes what he starts. That's why Paul said, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it 
on the day of Jesus Christ. When we become confident and deeply convicted that the authority of God has anchored us in the work of God for the redemption of God, we stop looking for an exit plan and we begin to create a strategy for advancement that the Holy Spirit is leading us in. We remember it is God's authority that is always accompanied by his care. 1 Peter 3, God sees. Verse 5, but the eye of God was on the elders of Israel. He sees, he cares, he knows, he comforts, he commands. He goes with you because he has gone before you. And let me ask you this, friends. Is there anywhere in your life, in terms of obedience, in terms of serving God, in terms of doing what you know God's word has commanded, is there anywhere you're wanting to give up on God? You're wondering if he'll come through. You're wondering if he'll prove faithful. You're wondering if your best interest is in his heart. A number of years ago, just before the internet got its full claws in me, it was working in, I saw a video uh, it wasn't of a cat, but there is a cat involved. It was a video of a bear cub. It's this cute little bear cub out in the middle of this meadow next to a river. And the first thing you see or think when you see the video is, oh. You can just kind of hear a collective awe when the video starts. And he's just scrounging around for food and he's all by himself. And, and all of a sudden the music kind of goes, chon, chon, chon. And this mountain lion comes up over a big rock and sees him. And all of a sudden, he leaps off the rock and he begins to run after the cub. And the cub hears the commotion, turns around and look. And you can see, you know, they've got these little moaning sounds like the cub is doing that. And he takes off and he starts running at a full sprint as fast as he can go. But he is no match for the mountain lion. The mountain lion is gaining on him with every stride. And so he comes down to the edge of the river where a large tree extends up to this huge boulder. And the cub goes up. Up and he's hoping to get onto the boulder but he's not quite high enough and he turns around and he's kind of slipping all over the tree you know about to fall and, and your stomach's in knots kind of moving with him as he's almost falling off the tree and the mountain lion begins to stalk very slowly up the tree towards the cub and you go this is it this is it and right as he gets to the cub whom the tree breaks and the cub falls into the river and you go, here we go again. There's new life, you know. And so he starts floating down the river and he's hanging on desperately to this limb that he's fallen into the river on and floating down. But not too far down the river, he, the river shallows and he hits a sandbar and that, that mountain lion comes right up behind him and now he's even closer to him and more accessible to him. And you go, no, no, this can't end this way. What in the world? Get out of there. And so the cub pushes off from the stick back into the river in the current and the current continues to take him and the mountain lion is, is following him down and you hear him go as he floats down the river and sure enough he comes up on some rocks and this is it friends this is the moment of truth that the video has been leading towards that cub says this is it I'm either going to have to fight or we're not going to have any future here and so he musters up everything as the mountain lion comes right up to him and the mountain lion is grabbing at him and that cub goes 
And he opens his mouth to roar at the mountain lion and immediately the mountain lion's face drops and he recants just a little bit and the camera pans around behind the cub and as the cub opened his mouth, the mama roared behind it. And that mountain lion wasn't going to mess with that mama. You may think God's lost control. You may think God doesn't see you. God doesn't hear you. God can't do anything for you. Don't you for one minute believe it. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that threatens, that competes with, or compares to God's authority. You submit to God and he will bring to you by his authority the strength to persevere for his glory and your good. Let's pray.